This podcast is brought to you by Trend. Trend is a micro-influencer marketing platform that helps connect brands with influencers. Learn more, join our network, or start an influencer campaign at trend.io. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the DTC pod. I'm your host, Jay, and I'm joined with the CEO of Trend, Ramon. And we've also got an awesome guest with us here today, Jack Meredith, who is the VP of Marketing for Kettle and Fire. And if you're not familiar with Kettle and Fire, Kettle and Fire is a brand that has created the first 100% grass-fed, shelf-stable beef bone broth. I'm sure Jack is going to do a better intro than I will on his (laughs) own brand um, as well. But we're super excited to have Jack here on the podcast. We're going to be talking about Kettle and Fire's awesome, awesome, awesome marketing strategy, everything from... uh, paid ads, uh, their content strategy, and and all that fun stuff as well. But before we dive into the podcast, uh, Ramon actually has a pretty personal connection to Kettle and Fire. So I'm going to pass the mic over to him first uh, to give a little bit of an intro, and then uh, we'll pass it over to Jack. Yeah, no, it's great to have you here, Jack. Out of the 100 plus episodes we've done, you know, this is the one company that I've probably known the most about, just given to the fact that you know, I was roommates with uh, one of the founders, Nick Maris. And so I pretty much was able to watch Kettle and Fire grow from the sidelines from the very early days when it was just, you know, Bone Broth Co. And to me, even though after learning from 100 plus CPG brands, to me, Kettle and Fire still is, you know, one of the most interesting, impressive and fascinating businesses and how you guys continue to compound and scale revenue year after year, especially when, you know, you guys stayed so lean over time with a limited amount of SKUs. So I was able to learn from the sidelines. So pretty much by learning from Kettle and Fire is how, you know, I got interested more and more into DTC. So there's a lot of connection there, but I'm excited to have you on, Jack. You guys, as I just wanted to fill in the audience with context of how you guys are masters of operations, health, and scaling businesses and growth. And so today we have Jack Meredith, who's, you know, the mastermind in the marketing behind all of this. So on to you, Jack, to, you know, explain more about Kettle and Fire and excited to dive in with you. Right on. Well, I really appreciate that. I think that was like the best intro <laughs> I've ever gotten. Uh, yeah, I feel very touched. You needed uh, a walking no, like, song. Thanks, thanks for uh, that. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> like, a, like the WWE. Yeah. I need. Um, yeah. So I'm excited to be here and excited to chat through a bunch of different topics, but a uh, quick background on myself. So I'm the VP of marketing at Kettle and Fire. I came on as actually employee number one. So that was about five years ago. And so early on, we were very much DTC focused. We weren't the brand that we are today. So a lot of my time was spent on the performance and growth side. A lot of online marketing and that's still the areas that i like to really play in that's where i nerd out but over time as the brand has really expanded we've uh now been in a bunch of retail distribution dtc is still strong we have the amazon presence so my day-to-day responsibilities have definitely changed but it's been an awesome journey and just a quick background on the company so we are a bone broth company we make bone broth and bone broth based soups very much in the whole health and wellness space that's where we like to play. So all of our products, you know, check off all the boxes, dietary friendly, keto, paleo, high quality ingredients. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just really excited to join and jump in. And I, I think hopefully this will be a 
unique interview just given the nature of our products because I don't think there's a ton of CPG brands that are really driving on the DTC side, uh, just given the nature of those types of products. So pumped to jump right in. Yeah, let's dive right in to things um, over here. You know, one of the most interesting things I think, uh, and we love to get super tactical over here, so we're probably just gonna dive straight into the tactical stuff. Um, let's talk a little bit about your blog that you have, the resources that are on the Kettle and Fire website. You know, at least for me, someone who's uh, purchased from, you know, I don't have a direct-to-consumer brand, but I've purchased from them. And, you know, a lot of direct-to-consumer e-commerce brands don't really have that kind of stuff or, or don't really dive in very deep over there. Those are kind of things that we see more on like the B2B side of the world and stuff like that. So I'd love if you can kind of dive in a little bit more. I mean, you've got the eBooks as well. What's kind of the approach to the content strategy over there at Kettle and Fire and and why is it so so different than what's out there and what's it about? Why is it working? I, I'd love to hear that. Yeah. So when we first started the company, like I said, we weren't in any retail stores. We didn't know anyone in the whole retail space. So we had to start strictly online through our direct consumer. And, you know, when you're trying to create like a brand footprint in the early stages and you don't have like a venture funded war chest, you have to get a little crafty with how you approach things. And and so we did a very in-depth audit of like all the channels that we could play in and where to invest. And uh, SEO kept on coming up just because based on what we saw at that time, and this was like four years ago, there was just a lot of low hanging fruit, a lot of opportunity to potentially rank for keywords related to our products. So bone broth, bone broth recipes, but even beyond that, more top of the funnel type uh, keywords relating to different diets or health related conditions. So that was kind of like the hypothesis was like, if we can really give this a shot and really invest in content marketing for a couple of months, maybe that can be like our competitive moat, right? Because I think a lot of DTC brands, when they're tackling things like the default channel is always like, let's figure out Facebook ads. And I think that's always going to be a, a core channel for a lot of brands, but it's a channel that can you can very easily get competition from, right? It's not anyone can start advertising. They have to be good at it, um, which is a whole nother story. But with SEO, how we thought about it was, well, if we can really blanket all the keywords that we feel like our core consumers are going to be searching for, then that's going to you know, last us a long time because it's much harder to just try to compete on the SEO side. So we invested in content marketing. We did kind of, we kind of looked at it as like a three month trial period because we knew that seeing results from, from SEO stuff is going to take longer to realize. And uh, we started just turning out really long form educational quality content, targeting keywords. We got into a, a good cadence with that. And then I'd say probably three or four months after we you know, posted all of our content, we just, we did start seeing a little lift in that organic traffic and it was enough of a signal for us to double down. And so we started really small, had like just a freelance content writer, and then we started just kind of scaling from there. So we brought on a full-time content manager, we hired more writers, and we just, you know, try to tackle everything. And the results of that uh, is probably what you see today, where, you know, if you search bone broth related keywords, we're typically on the first page, hopefully in the first like couple results. And that's work that we did, you know, three or four years ago, and we haven't really had to do too much since then. So that's that's kind of the thinking behind why we invested in content marketing. Um, but beyond just as like a way to 
drive awareness and, and get customers, I think we also used it as a way to educate our audience, whether they were customers or just people that were visiting. There's just a lot of ambiguity around these different topics, whether it's related to bone broth or health and dieting. And so um, we wanted to be that kind of like thought leader in the space to where folks would come to us for that type of information. And hopefully down the line, they end up becoming a customer. And I'm sure you're super happy now with the, the way that Facebook ads are going with iOS to have that content marketing channel as well. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, like, I think that's something that we've always been keeping in the back of our mind is like, you know, how can we be on the cutting edge of finding new uh, opportunities for growth? Because in, you know, the short, relatively short period I've been at Kettle and Fire, so much has changed with online marketing, um, you know, across the board and how to operate a Facebook ads account was much different than it is today. So that's something that we've always tried to kind of force us to stay humble about, because if we get to uh, content with how everything's going. I think that's when you really start losing market share and start stalling on the growth side. Right. And I, I think that's one of my favorite things that, that you guys have done over there is that even though SEO was very successful, especially because, you know, the timing was right for you guys, there wasn't the competition that that there is now for those keywords. So timing was prime and you could have stayed completely focused on that on that channel alone. But I know you guys, even though if something works, you guys always go and attack the next thing to jump on and continue scaling and growing, which is why I believe you guys have been able to do this year after year. And just, you know, as an outsider of the business, I look at it. And so jumping onto ads, you know, you guys started and had only one product skew for a long period of time, if I'm correct. And so I'm impressed of how you guys have been able to continue to scale ads, you know, whether that's on Amazon or Google or Facebook, Instagram, with one product line until you guys added more SKUs. Would you say that was and has been one of the most challenging parts of the business? And, you know, how has that marketing strategy evolved over time from when you guys, you know, had to scale ads with one SKU and as you continue to add it and created the bundles and all that? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it was and still is incredibly difficult for us just because with our products, like they're consumable goods and it's bone broth. So it's water weight. So it's not the easiest or most cost effective thing to ship either. Mm -hmm. So I've always thought to myself that we've kind of been playing on hard mode since day one, because unlike some other types of products where the margins are really great, we don't have the greatest margins ever. Mm -hmm. And that not only because it's a consumable, because we want to make sure like every product that we make is a very high quality in terms of the ingredients, which end up costing more. So what that has forced us to really do is just be very diligent about how we're allocating our spend and also really making sure that we're hitting whatever our performance targets are. And it's definitely been like an uphill battle because of that. But um, in a way, I think it's really kind of forced us to to get creative in terms of like how we've approached different ad channels, uh, funnels, how we what tactics we can do to drive up our average order value, stuff like that. So yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of par for the course. That's just the nature of the beast in our situation. But in a way, I, I feel like it is a good thing just because you see all these brands that raise like a, just a ton, a ton of money and they're expected to just grow like crazy and sometimes unprofitably. And so that would be really fun for sure. <laughs> That'd right. be excited. But at the same time, um, it can get sideways from a business standpoint if you, you get too drunk off of that, so to speak. So 
Yeah, that's that's kind of how we've always thought about yeah. it, and it's definitely something that uh, is a real challenge for sure. Yeah, for sure. And I assume you know in CPG the unit economics aren't always going to be the same because there's so many determining factors that could change that over time. So to raise so much money, you know, expecting that unit economics are always going to be the same is a huge gamble. Which is why I assume you guys you know went so hard in retail as were uh, as well as as part of your growth play instead of just staying focused in DTC. So you guys are an absolute juggernaut when it comes to retail too. I believe you guys are in over 12,000 stores. And so you guys are also a lean team on top of that. So I'm curious on how you know you guys view retail as a part of growth along with DTC and how has that affected your marketing strategies, if, if at all, or if they just don't touch each other and are completely you know, separate aspects of the business. Yeah, I mean that was that was definitely a big learning curve for me personally because the first couple of years I was really learning the ropes on the the e-com and growth side for online and then we start getting all this retail distribution and it's like a completely different beast. Um so there's definitely some challenges early on like we were definitely worried about our subscriber base because you know will they still stick around if they can find it for potentially cheaper at stores or on Amazon and and so there's there's a lot of complexity involved with that, but I think over time my I guess perspective on it has changed because at the end of the day, if we're not on the aisle in the broth and stock section, then we're going to lose market share. It's not like folks are just gonna say, "Oh, I don't see kettle and fire here. I'm gonna wait and go buy online." Like that's not gonna happen. So my goal is to always see not only how how can we really market the business, but also how can we max out like the physical availability to where it's easy as possible for people to buy us anywhere. But on the marketing side, how it's changed things is, I think the, a big change for us was really adopting more of like a 360 approach to our budgeting. So today, how we look at our budgeting is we have all of our discretionary spend types broken out by like DTC performance, Amazon, retail, and we try to look at everything top down so that way I can go in and tweak the different levers month to month, week to week, based on where we see the opportunities. So for instance, one month, uh, if Facebook ads is not performing so great, or if we've hit a snag there, I can shift that budget in real time, maybe over to like Instacart ads or whatever we're seeing the most bang for our buck. And so that's something that I think we really had to make like a mind shift with because in Prior to that, we we were really kind of isolated in how we thought about our different budgets and areas of spend. And we almost treated each sales channel as like its own separate thing. But at the end of the day, like in terms of our targets, I don't really care how do we get to our goal for 2021 as long as we get there. And that could be 90% mm -hmm. retail, it could be 50% retail. I don't really care as long as all the numbers make sense. So that's, that's a, I think, a big thing that's changed in our approach to it with retail coming into play. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense over there. Got it. So I know Jay has a few questions he wants to fire away, but uh, just out of curiosity, so you set the KPIs from a top down level, from a high level, or do you set it out, you know, based on different areas for each, say, marketing strategy? Yeah, so... For each channel. Yeah. So how we look at it is uh, first we look at it like the, at the business level, like what revenue target do, do we want to be at? What's our percentage of gross spend, which is kind of a way to set the budget. And then we try to lay out a path to like, okay, how do we get there? And that applies like forecasting from, you know, historical performance for each sales channel. And once we kind of get a sense of what that is, then we try to understand like, okay, what's going to give us the best shot at getting there at the most 
efficient spend. And we set our plan out in terms of how we're going to approach budgeting. But I think the key thing is to remember, it's just a plan and plans change constantly. And so it's important for us to be flexible to where as we see opportunity, we're able to jump on it instead of not, right? <laughs> like the opposite. Like, And I think that's the important thing for us is to, to really have our data in a row to where we can be able to look at what's going on within each channel and make moves accordingly. But in terms of like DTC channel, Amazon, whatever, like we do have like our own performance targets for each channel um, and kitten like their own set of KPIs. But I think it's worth noting that we we always have to kind of adapt based on what we're seeing in real time. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense over there. I'd be really curious. So I know you mentioned, you know, shifting your your budget on different marketing plays and things like that as the, the market kind of shifts. And one of the things that I picked up was I know I think you mentioned Instacart as well. I think uh, for most CPG companies or even uh, direct to consumer generally, the default is kind of like Facebook ads, maybe Amazon, you know, a couple of those regular like standard plays. What kind of channels are you guys diving into? You know, maybe people aren't thinking about that's worked effectively that you can kind of share. Yeah. Yeah. So when we started getting like retail distribution, the thing that we were always scratching our heads about was like, okay, we online, we can attribute everything, right? Like you spend X amount on Facebook, you have a pretty good sense of what that return is. But with traditional like retail levers, like, uh, you know, doing sampling in store or, or running like promos, it's very hard to get that like one-to-one -one attribution. Like you can get some directional understanding, but the fact that these purchases are happening offline makes it really tricky. So we did some digging I'd say like two years ago to try to understand like, okay, where, how can we leverage our expertise on the performance marketing side to really tackle retail? And what came out of that was some opportunities within these different apps uh, that have been, you know, gaining a lot of momentum in the past decade. So Instacart's a big one. They just rolled out like an advertising platform probably in the last like three, four years. And I think we were one of like the first brands that were able to get into like their beta. And with Instacart, it's great because all the purchases are happening through the app, right? So like we know exactly if we spend X amount, we're gonna know what that return is. So we're gonna have like ROAS, CPA, all, all the, the metrics that you you know usually look at when you're evaluating any type of ad channel. And that's been great because of that. So it almost operates as like if you're running like a you know an, an AdWords campaign. So that's a big one for us. Kroger, surprisingly, I guess most people wouldn't think about this, but they've invested a lot on the technological side. And, and so they have a very similar type of platform, like a PPC platform. So we've seen a lot of success there. We've also worked with a lot of coupon apps. I bought as one, Fetch is another, to where you know we set up an offer within the app and then they have like millions of users. And so they'll redeem the offer and and that's attributable as well. So that's kind of how we've approached things is like, let's leverage our expertise on the performance side to really kick ass on all the retail side of things. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so, you know, talking about retail sales, especially, that's a hard thing to track, especially if someone's not ordering from an app or anything like that. What are some of those key metrics that you look at for retail or, or things that you look at? Or is there anything that you're kind of using as a benchmark from the apps to kind of compare or any of that stuff? 
Yeah, yeah. So retail is it's interesting because it's not uh, you know at the level of I guess analytics or attribution that you see with like you know operating like a DTC brand, but at the same time, if you have a team that has a lot of experience in this space, they know how to you know navigate that. So there's different uh, reporting that we can pull. Uh, Spins is like the big name that folks will probably reference for CPG to where you can see like your sales velocity by retailer, by store, like on a week to week basis. And so we use that a lot directionally, but in the early stages, like when you get into retail, the big thing is like, you know, can you sell in my store well enough to where I'd bring you into more stores? So like when we tested in Whole Foods, it's not like Whole Foods said like, okay, kettle on fire, you guys are great. We're going to push you nationwide and it's going to be awesome. Basically, they came to us and they're like, okay, we're going to have you guys test in like these two regions at X amount of stores. I can't remember what it was, but it was only in you know a certain number of states. And once we see how that test goes, we'll determine if we want to take you guys nationwide or into more stores. And so that's always the tricky thing, especially for like new brands, when you get into like these bigger retailers is how can you increase your velocity because they set their targets for you. And if you don't hit them, there's a good chance that you're not going to be in their store anymore. And what makes it even dicier is that when you're not in their store anymore, it's very, very hard to get back in because they look at it as like, well, that brand didn't work. Move on to the next thing. So we really had to have all of our ducks in a row, which is why it's not like we tackled retail right out the gate. We want, we needed to make sure that we could really build our brand footprint to the point where we felt confident that even with very limited resources, we could drive uh, foot traffic into the stores just because people knew of Cattle and Fire. And I think if we approach it the traditional way for CBG, which is like to start in retail, we wouldn't have been nearly as, as successful as we are now because it's just such a challenge to get that foot traffic in the door. Are you interested in DTC and e-commerce content? Join Trend's exclusive community for everything DTC, the DTCers community. We're talking marketing, product, growth, and more, all about DTC. Go to trend.io slash podcast. That's T-R-E-N-D dot I-O slash podcast. And look for the Slack community link to claim your invite. We hope to see you on there. One kind of final follow-up, I guess, on this that I'll ask you especially relating to velocity, what kind of tips would you give to, to people out there that are considering you know, that, that retail path or uh, might have their first retail opportunity to really nail it on the velocity um, that first time so that way you, know, you don't get the boot from the store down the line? Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, I, mean, I think the starting point is to make sure you have your shit together on the inventory and supply chain side. Like, cause it can be the worst thing if you like get into, you know, say Whole Foods and you miss on that first purchase order because you're out of stock or something bad happens. Like that's a big no, no. They don't, they look at that and they're like, oh, these guys aren't trustworthy. They can't even produce products. You probably ruin your chances. Yeah. No, I kill your chances. Uh, so make sure to have that in order. And then I think make sure the timing's right too. Like I said, if you go too prematurely into it, then there's a higher risk that you might fail or it might not work. And you really only have one shot once you get into these bigger stores. So you have to make sure the timing's right. And and so that's why for us, we we didn't get into 
these first series of natural chains like Whole Foods and Sprouts until like year two, year three, because we felt like then we were ready. But once you're in the stores, what typically happens is you'll have a sense of like, what is like that sales velocity per week that they expect. And that kind of becomes like your magic number. So it's like, okay, how can I sell 10 units per store each week? And once you kind of try to break it down like that, you can typically work backwards and determine, okay, what are the tactics that I'm going to do to do that? And for us at the time, it's not like we had raised like a series A, so we had limited resources. So we had to get really like crafty. So we would do stuff that like didn't scale. So like I remember one one thing that we did was we would scrape like a bunch of like nutritionists in like a certain area that we were testing in. And we would literally send like paper coupons in the mail just to like get them to, to give them to their patients because we knew like nutritionists and like holistic doctors were recommending bone broth to people. So doing stuff like that, uh, because like, it's not as if the expectations are massive, right? Like they're not, they're, they're just trying to, the, the retailers are just trying to get a sense of like, can this brand sell well in my stores? And that doesn't mean that you have to sell out every week. It's just that you need to move some number of products. So that's, that's something I think was uh, a good learning for us is like, even if like something that we do early in the early stages isn't going to scale, that might just be enough to get us over the hump to where we can get into more distribution. For sure. So, you know, I know we talked about content over here and we talked about retail strategy as well. I'd love to kind of uncover if there's anything um, on the organic side or, or social side or even email side that's really worked for you for Kettle and Fire. Anything that you'd like to share there? Yeah. So I think like uh, one of our core channels from the early stages, and it's still true now, is on the like influencer and affiliate marketing. I think really if I was to look back at how we got that first, you know, spurt of growth, if you want to call it that, it wasn't really like Facebook ads or SEO because that took a while to get ready. It was it was the affiliate and influencer space that really helped us. And so how we've always tried to approach it is like, you know, what can we do to not only make our partners money, because that's what's driving a lot of these, but also just like, how can we go out of the way to really knock their socks off when they're working with us? Because I think when you typically start with like influencer marketing or affiliate, like the, I guess like the go-to way to approach it is like, I'm going to set up a paid splash page with like a sign up form. And then it's almost like a, if you build it, they will come type mentality and people or like brands might might launch all that and then they like wait like a week and they're like, whoa, why don't I have like thousands of, you know, influencers trying to, you know, cop my stuff. And like, it's, it's that doesn't, how, it's not how it works at all. And so it, it when we kind of noticed that we were like, okay, let's see how we can create like this white glove experience. And what that required for us to do was a lot of heavy lifting. So really getting a good system down for doing outreach and, and making it as easy as possible for someone to promote. Um, that was one thing that we noticed early on too, is like we'd sign up for a couple of like these programs for other brands and it, they made it, maybe sent you like a couple of emails, but there wasn't like any direction on like, how can I be successful promoting your brand? So we tried to you know take a step back and, and determine like, okay, if I was an influencer, what would make it super easy for me to promote someone? And so like check the items off the list. Like they need like a landing page, they need a coupon code, they need like swipes, they need like examples from other partners that have been successful so they can kind of picture themselves in their shoes and be like, oh shit, that person did X, Y, and Z. I can do that. 
And so we try to organize that all into like a toolkit to give to these folks. And on top of that, just building there, relationships there, too. I think that's a big thing. And I was going to say that there wasn't any influencer marketing platforms that had launched by the time that you guys were doing this even, because I do remember, um, you know, Nick seeing, seeing you guys doing influencer marketing. And at the time you guys pretty much built all this ad hoc internally. Oh God. Yeah. It was a, it was a nightmare. <laughs> it was like a lot of spreadsheets and manual stuff. Like it's so much easier today. Like you have so many tools out there that can automate all the things and it's much easier to like even understand like what is the value of a potential influencer based on like the metrics that we didn't really have eyes on. Like if we wanted to get the metrics back then we had to like ask and then like cross our fingers that they were like not lying to us. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's gotten a lot easier, but I mean, that was a, that was such a big channel, not only because it drove new customers, but because like all these folks were like thought leaders in these different niches in health and wellness. And they did like an even better job explaining the benefits of the company than we could. And that's such great social proof. And I think that's, you know, really what kind of helped us close the gap, not only from a pure growth standpoint, but also just from like an awareness standpoint, because it's really easy to go into conversations with like retail partners when you can, when you can say like, this person is a big backer of what we're doing. This person is, and, and they know those, those folks' names. So that, that was a big win for us in the early stages as well. Is that something that's still working for you today? Are you are you still using influencers for that strategy? Yeah, yeah, it's still it's still like a, a I think a cornerstone of like our growth strategy. I think the whole landscape has changed. Well, you guys use trend, so we do, we do. <laughs> yeah, we're big trend fans. Yeah, but uh, the landscape has definitely changed. So like when we first started, it was very easy to to work with basically anyone on like straight up commission deals. So we'd only pay them when they drove revenue. But as this whole space is blown up and all these brands have really wanted to figure influencer out, these types of folks have like realized like, oh, there's so much demand for what I'm doing. I don't want to do commissions anymore because I have to like work to make money. Like why not just, you know, say, hey, you pay me X, regardless if you make a lot of money or no money, I still get the cash. So that's, definitely made it a little challenging but um you know we've we've had to adapt for sure but i think there's ways to kind of work around it because uh i think the trickiest thing with the influencers or one of the trickier things is is really being able to you know negotiate and price correctly because it's it can be such a hit or miss type thing and you want to try to limit the number of misses as much as possible so like something that we try to do is we we try to like negotiate deals that make sense for both the influencer and us. So the influencer always wants that money up front. We would prefer to only pay after they make us money. So one thing that we do is we try to meet in the middle and create these kind of hybrid type deals to where we'll have a commission-based structure and then maybe a lower upfront fee. And so we'll go to the, go to the, a partner and be like, hey, instead of us paying you $10,000, why don't we just pay it? Would you be down if we paid you a couple thousand dollars and you'll get a commission on each sale? And I think that's kind of a way to navigate it to where we can have more control like over our budget and not get totally burned if you know something doesn't work the way it, we think it's going to be. Right. Definitely. Because it's probably a red flag if they don't want any commission at all. <laughs> yeah, I mean there's always exceptions. Um, and I get it. Like it's if I was in their shoes, like I would want that cash right away. But I think like the thing that we try to paint for them is like you guys could potentially be making even more money as long as you know, you do a killer job promoting the brand. And 
what we found is like maybe we'll have like a a standard contract for an influencer to do like a couple stories but once they see that money rolling in from the commissions then then you start getting like these freebies on the side because maybe they have like a carton of kettle and fire laying around and they think to themselves like oh i'm just gonna like you know do a little promotion on a friday and generate some extra commissions and so that's been good to see because i think if once you kind of get people to understand like the long-term value of being on an affiliate program and making commissions, I think you start seeing more of that happen, which is never a bad thing. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that. Uh, you know, I know we're coming towards the end of the episode over here. Ramon, I don't know if you have any questions left to ask Jack. I'm good. I think, um, you know, this is super valuable. I think when you look at Kettle and Fire from the outside, again, it's all about DTC, retail affiliate and you know just from how jack explained and answered all the questions you can tell that that's the backbone of of the culture that they have that they adapt and are open-minded to go with the market and see things from the market's perspective not from how it can only benefit them but how can it benefit the partners that they work with and the marketers so uh, no questions from my end awesome well jack it was awesome having you on the podcast uh really appreciate you taking the time before we wrap up over here uh just one final question uh what's next for kettle and fire and where can people learn more and if you have anything else to kind of share uh feel free to fire away yeah yeah so uh what's next for kettle and fire um so we have some exciting product launches coming i think in june so like two months from now i can't reveal them yet but we're, we're pretty pumped about it i think a big thing for us is always trying to constantly like innovate on the product side and i feel like we've hit the mark on this one. So pretty pumped about that. But beyond that, like I think one maybe takeaway just from my experience on from the past five years, like a learning for me was to always be very boots on the ground trying to figure stuff out. And a lot of the time when I was trying to figure things out, I didn't know what I was doing. And if I could go back to the beginning, what I would really try to do, which is what I do now, is to try to find folks that have much more knowledge in these different areas and channels than I do and learn from them because that's been the best way for me to grow personally. I will always try to tell myself, like, I still don't know shit. I still don't know shit. Like, cause I don't know shit. Like there's still a lot of stuff that mm. I, I have no like really strong understanding of. And I still talk to consultants all the time and we, we bring on folks to do like mind shares. And I think that's just the fastest way to get going, especially in the early stages, because it's just so daunting to look at, you know, DTC performance, all this stuff. And like, where do I go? Where do I start? Like, it's, it's, it's incredibly tough, like mentally to kind of piece everything together. And so I, I think that would be my words of wisdom being in this is like, don't try to trial and error it like all the time. Like it's, that's such a tough way to approach things. But yeah, beyond that, kettleandfire.com, that's our website. Go there, buy our stuff. It's great. If you don't like it, we'll give you a refund. No problem. And yeah, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is, I think, at JV Meredith, M-E-R-E-D-I-T-H. And last thing, uh, me and my former coworker, we, we actually launched a website called DTCplaybooks.com. And basically the thinking behind that is we wanted to take all the learnings that we gained over the past couple of years and you know create content and courses off of that so that folks that are just starting out don't have to go through all the uh, you know challenges that we did trying to figure everything out. Um, 
And we can leave a promo code in the, in the show notes. I think we just launched a performance partnerships playbook, which is very related to what we were talking about earlier with the influencer marketing piece. Awesome. Well, Jack, thank you so much. You know, recently I was just thinking that, man, as a startup, especially in the early days, sometimes you cannot afford a consultant and all you need is a playbook to hit the ground running with and at least get from zero to one and then go from there. So I'm excited to see those playbooks. I'm definitely going to buy them myself. And so we'll add that to the show notes. And we also have a Slack community of all the listeners of DTC pod. We'll share it over there as well. And have you join the, the, the community as well. So you can explain further on, on the playbooks, but yeah, best of luck with that. Again, thank you for the time, Jack. Yeah. Thanks so much. Uh, really appreciated having you over here. It was an awesome episode. I know I learned a lot. And I'm sure the audience did as well. If you did, feel free to drop us a a quick rating and subscribe to the podcast. And we'll see you next time on the DTC pod.